When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to the Sound Medicine Podcast. I'm Barbara Lewis. It's one thing to have cancer, but it is another thing altogether to know that people in your family have cancer and you're wondering if you're going to be next. So that's the focus of this episode, how to navigate what it means to have cancer in the family. Not everybody needs a genetic test, but everybody would do well to know more about their family history. Dr. Theo Ross grapples with that question every day, both professionally and personally. She treats patients who have the forms of cancer that can run in a family. She's an oncologist, and she focuses on what's called cancer susceptibility genes. Those are the mutations that can be passed on from parents to children, sometimes greatly increasing the risk of cancer. And she has a new book out titled, A Cancer in the Family, Take Control of Your Genetic Inheritance. This topic is really personal for Dr. Ross. She had melanoma herself, and she has more than a half a dozen family members who've also had cancer. When I spoke with her recently, she told me how looking for mutations within families can extend beyond cancer into other conditions. So here's a great example of that. Remember the story of the feud of the Hatfields and McCoys? Well, it turns out one of those families shared a gene that causes both tumors and not surprisingly, aggression. From 1964 to 1994, a family was studied at the University of Virginia and they were called the McSee family. And it turned out they were the McCoys, and it turned out this family was studied because they had tumors in multiple generations. And the tumors were these rare pheochromocytomas, which are tumors of the adrenal gland, and those tumors of the adrenal gland secrete large amounts of epinephrine, causing anxiety. And they were actually called the madness family. They had a madness disease. And then in the early 90s, it was discovered that there was a gene called VHL, or von Hippel-Lindau gene, which causes this syndrome in this family, the McSee family. <laughs> and this was then published in 1998 in the academic journal. And multiple generations, this McSee family, they had this man, this disease, and had not been identified at the time. But then in 2007, the family themselves came out and talked about it in the news because they wanted the rest of their family members to know that they might have a mutation in this VHL gene that could cause not only the pheochromocytomas, which is that madness disease and can be screened for and removed and then they can calm down, uh, but also other tumors, like tumors of the kidney and brain. 
etc. So that explains, so was it just anxiety or was it aggression? I mean, what all did they, what, what was the... Ex- so the argument is, in, in the field is, does, did it really cause it? Did it cause anxiety? Were they afraid of the McCoys and that, or the anxiety because they're angry? Well, it turns out the family was an angry family. So if you look back and hear about reports of the physicians, they'd even be mad at their doctors. So the aggression could have been caused by that. It's kind of fun to speculate. But clearly, this family has a genetic syndrome that causes cancers, causes pheochromocytomas. And the idea that it's the McCoys, and these families are all over the country. They're not just, you know, located in Appalachia or Texas, where the two main places, um, but all over. And so once they came out to say this, they wanted to help the rest of their family who didn't know. But yes, did it cause it? Well, historians go back and forth. But the fact is, is this family has a genetic syndrome that causes tumors that cause secretion of fight-and-flight hormones. And so there's the fight in there. So why did you include that in the book? I mean, it is a wonderful example, but what, what, were, you, what were you going for? It was two-pronged. I, I hope to use it. One is, is, yeah, genetics is power. Knowing your genetic inheritance can give you power, can save your life. And in this case, it really does for this family. If they know they have the mutation, great. They can get screened, get the tumors out. They can be followed. If they don't have the mutation, they don't have to worry. So that was one reason. But the other reason was it was part of the whole idea of personalizing your therapy. And I hate to use that word because I think it's a cliche. We've always personalized who we see our patient. And we try to make sure that we do what is right for them. But this VHL, von Hippel-Lindau gene, leads to a protein that causes lots of blood vessels to form and using anti-blood vessel medications to treat the tumors, we've had some really good progress in kidney cancer. So it was part of the not only genetic inheritance, but also treatment of people who already have cancers in a more precise way. And how did the McCoy family use this information then? So were they, I, I was wondering what their, their reaction was, <laughs> besides maybe anger and aggression. Uh, to, to knowing that they have this mutation? Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, they, you know, this is all by news reports, but, you know, they, they were in the news through for a couple of years, starting in 2007, and they had pictures, like, you know, one daughter, this is a great example, I remember, and I, maybe I'm not getting this perfect, but she uh, was diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And when she'd get really mad, she'd have tantrums. And they then figured this out, that she was a McCoy, that she, McSee, and that she had this mutation. They then did a scan. They did, looked at her urine for these hormones, and they found, with those two combined, that she had one of these tumors that happened very early in kids. They took it out. She's doing great in school. Well, I haven't had, did well for years. I haven't followed up, you know, in the last five years. Uh, so they're all using it in a very productive way. Uh, to my knowledge. Well, I, I love this book because it tells us, uh, it, it kind of in, it empowers us, I think, and any um, family that has a lot of uh, cancer in it, you know, you do get scared. I know, and for, for me, uh, my, my husband died a few years ago, and people asked me, well, what are you doing to prevent cancer? And I said, well, I'm not getting screened. Because I said, just give me a year of not knowing, you know, this sort of denial that, that, that we get into. So I was wondering, in your opinion, who really should get some genetic testing done? Well, I think before you start with a, you know, not everybody needs a genetic test, but everybody would do well to know more about their family history, more about their family history of cancer, other diseases. 
So collecting an accurate family history is the first thing, and it's really tough. And as you probably know in your own family, everybody knows in their family, there's cancer secrecy. It continues. We all talk about how, you know, used to never talk about cancer. We still don't talk about cancer. It's a tough one to talk about. Um, And so getting that accurate family history is never perfect, but it's better than it used to be. And then if you do find that you have cancers in the family where people are younger, you know, breast cancers happen in the 30s or the early 40s, or uh, you have these rare cancers like the pheochromocytomas that the um, McCoys had, uh, these are all kind of indications that there may be a genetic syndrome causing the cancers for which screening, removal of organs, removal of at-risk tissue uh, can prevent or catch cancers earlier. So I think that accurate family history is the first thing. And then, you know, talking to a genetic counselor. Genetic counselors kind of fell from heaven for us, and we don't have enough of them. But they will help you sort through the family history, and they'll say, well, we have a, you know, it looks like you might have a familial syndrome, or you may not. And then you just check back in with them. It's like having your primary uh, doctor, but it's a primary genetic counselor. And and in your book, A Cancer in the Family, you suggest not only doing the diagram of trying to find out who has cancer, but then also the relationships. There's this kind of emotional, psychological um, exercise that's worth doing. Um, Why is that? Yeah, that's not scientific, by the way. Right, (laughs) right. But but you you felt compelled to add it to the book. Yes. Well, I think it's really important because there is so much. It's not just the facts, ma'am. Give me the facts and that's all I want. There's also all of the emotional drama you know, that goes with being a member of a family. We're all a member of a family. Uh, and, so, and everybody wants to have the truth the way they want it to be, that old truthiness thing. Um, so finding the, you know, the, the leader in the family who's willing to tell the true truth, not the truthiness, and then help get that to everybody else and... and manage those dynamics is a really important thing. And there's an ethical component to it. You know, if you have a mutation or you know that there's some kind of risk, not sharing it with the family is an issue. That brings you back to the McCoys. The people who brought it back into the news in the 2007 wanted it because they wanted to get to family members that they didn't know and they thought they needed to know that they might have this mutation to save their life. And, and you have lived through all this. I mean, you had, let, let's, let's take yeah. you back in time to where, um, you, you thought you probably could, could use some genetic testing, but it really wasn't something that you wanted to do. And ironically, you were working <laughs> in, in, in genetics and in, in cancer. Right. Right. Yes. And so, you know, I, I knew about these genes in the early nineties. My sister had died of breast cancer in her thirties in, you know, the early nineties. And then these genes were discovered in the mid nineties at that point, we all thought, well, there's nothing much you can do with that information, so I thought, I've got an excuse I don't need to know. But then in the early 2000s, big information came out showing that if you had prophylactic surgeries, if you had your ovaries out, you had your breasts off, if you had a BRCA1 or a BRCA2 mutation, you could prevent cancer. So at that point, I should have known better, um, but I didn't, and I kind of ignored it, actually twisted some words from a genetic counselor, you know, did the old uh, denial thing. And it wasn't until... You know, I had a melanoma myself that I thought, hmm, maybe something should happen here. And then I had also a very pushy husband who helped me uh, see the light. And I called a friend who's a geneticist. And then after much hoopla, I ended up getting tested and finding that I had a BRCA1 gene mutation. But that took a long time. You know, that was in 2004. We knew about these genes in the mid-'90s. So I was, I was really delayed in making that discussion 
decision, even though I was a geneticist. I'd been working in genetics. I'd been working in cancer. I'm an oncologist. What, but I get it. I mean, you, you wanted, at first you thought, well, what good is this information going to do me? And I, I suspect that even with all the advances, there's a fair amount of us who are still thinking, you know, do we really want to know? And if we do want to know, are we really going to do what, what you did and, and have the, the, the breasts, have the mastec- double mastectomy and, the, and your ovaries removed? It or seems. be screened yeah. for a pheochromocytoma or have your kidneys screened, depending on the syndrome. That's correct. And, and there's a lot of information we're getting today because we sequence a genome now. Now we're sequencing multiple genomes, and so we're finding many, many genes that, when broken, may predispose people to cancer. And then what do we do about that? We don't know. So the research is still ongoing. And so the question, you know, why would I want to know, because I don't know what I would do, is a good one. And I would say, based on my experience, knowing is better than not knowing and uh, you know, on the other hand, you have to do it when the time is right for you. But if you find out, then you help your entire family, which I did. Once I found out I had the mutation, I helped all the rest of my family members by getting them tested, finding out some were negative, they didn't have to worry, others were positive, and they could be proactive. That's Dr. Theo Ross. She runs the Cancer Genetics Program at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. I asked her how her family members took that news about cancer in their family. I mean, I think people were shockingly excited about knowing. I was excited. I was shocked by my own reaction, which was, wow, fantastic. Now we know. Yeah, it wasn't that simple. We'll have that part of the story in just a moment. You're listening to the Sound Medicine Podcast. 
we discovered that the mutation actually came from my Polish Catholic mother, who was Jewish. The reality is it's a Jewish mutation, founder mutation. There were just a few people who were born with this mutation thousands of years ago, and then they intermarried because they were isolated, because they're groups, and that's what people do, they isolate groups. And that's how it became a founder mutation, and I happened to have it, and it came from my Polish Catholic mother. What does it mean to have this genetic mutation, this specific one? How does this really increase your risk? We think of genes mutating, and how does this one do it? Well, this one is basically a broken gene. It's just defective. So a BRCA1, BRCA2, you know, many of these genes are, we call them tumor suppressor genes. So when they're good and they're not broken, they're spelled right, they will suppress the formation of tumors, mostly by keeping the DNA sequence in the cell intact, repairing it. So if you have, you know, more and more mutations, that leads to a cell growth out of control, invasion, and becomes a tumor. So when when it's broken, uh, it just gives you a head start for getting cancer. You have two uh, copies of a gene from your parents, one from mom, one from dad, and you need to have both broken to form a tumor. But if you have one already broken when you're born, you have a head start at getting tumors. And so most cancers then, we think of either you inherited your cancer or it happened somehow sporadically. But but all of them have some sort of genetic component because something has to happen on the cellular level. Yes, yes, yes. So once they're, you know, every time your cell divides, it has to replicate its DNA. And that replication has errors. And usually those errors are fixed, like spell check. But, you know, not all the time. And so randomly people can get cancers just because that's what happens or when, when cells divide or when you go outside and get a UV ray, you get a mutation, and that sets things off. So you decided to get the double mastectomy and, the, um, and your ovaries removed. What was your percentage, I guess, of, the, of your risk of getting either ovarian cancer or breast cancer? So at the time, I believed that I had an 80% lifetime risk of getting breast cancer and a 65% risk of getting ovarian cancer by the age of 70. Those numbers now are probably lower with as we've looked at more and more people who don't have cancer. So it's probably more in the range of, you know, 60 to 65% chance of getting breast cancer and 40% chance of getting ovarian cancer. It's still very high enough. And if I can remove the organ at risk and prevent that from happening, hey, why not? Well, yeah, I, and I guess that's the question is kind of, hey, why not? For you, it was a, hey, why not? But I guess you probably didn't come to it very quickly. No, I mean, I had been thinking about it for 10 years before I got tested, right? Right. <laughs> I, you know, that subconscious dribble. Right, right. But you you were glad that you, you did it, obviously. It, it, it may well have and probably did uh, save your life. Yeah. But I'm wondering about kind of any sort of kind of complications looking back on what it meant to you to get put into menopause at a, at a very early age. You know, um, for me, it, it, you know, just the emotional part of being free of that risk was much more important than hot flashes, a little bit of weight gain, and some irritability. I know that, you know, some people go through really bad, so I, I have to say that it can be very difficult for months. And we worry about bone density. I drink a lot of milk. I mean, I'm at Starbucks all day. And I'm kidding there. But, oh, yeah, I was going to uh, say I am too, but for, for the caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I definitely do the uh, latte. Um, 
you know, there are risks associated with these surgeries. And I, I get that, but there have been surveys of women who have gone ahead and done these surgeries, and emotionally, if you talk to them, more than 90% are very happy about what they chose to do. Uh, those that are not are those that did have complications, and they, that happens. So no, no decision is perfect. It's tough. It's very tough. Yeah, because I would think that, you know, in, in your book you mentioned if someone has this 100% chance of getting colon cancer, well, then having your colon removed makes absolute sense. But I'm wondering kind of what that percentage cutoff would be where it starts to get a really, really difficult to say, I don't know, if it's 60%, what do I do, or 65%? That's, you know, I mean, I think, you know, when you're getting into the 60% range, that's, that's pretty high for a cancer that could kill you or that you'll have to get chemotherapy. I'll tell you, I'd much rather have a mastectomy, uh, an orophorectomy, than have to go through chemotherapy. There's some pain and suffering that I just, I'm always, I find very sad. Uh, On the other hand, let me just give you an anecdote, and here is where it gets really dicey scientifically. My mom, the one who has that 5382 insertion C BRCA1 broken mutation, is 95 in June, and she is totally fine, has not had a mastectomy. And uh, so there are chances that you'll skate by. Yeah, and are there enough resources to really make you feel, I, I, not to say that I don't think anybody ever feels really comfortable with any sort of decision to have major surgery or finds out that they are, are very much at risk for a deadly cancer, but you know, are there enough resources available to people to, to be able to really get at least comfortable with the decision? What ha- I'll tell you what happens with people is they start with, if so, so say they have a mutation that puts them at a high risk. They go through screening. It doesn't have to be, you know, MRIs and mammograms and, you know, ultrasounds for the BRCA1 genes. It can also be ultrasounds for kidney cancer. It can be all, whatever the tests are. And they have something called scanxiety. So they start out with that. Most people do. They'll say, I need to take time making this decision. Makes sense. And they start out with that. But they do these scans. They're followed by their doctors. And most people, if there is a surgery available, that can prevent them from getting the cancer. After a couple years of this, decide to do it. So in terms of resources, I think part of it is just the experience, the internalizing what this could mean uh, to do this for the rest of my life. In the book, you talk about other ways to prevent cancer, and, and I, I find that um, this book is really empowering, you know, because usually you talk about um, a risk. I mean, at least you hear about uh, being at high risk for something, and, and you just get you get scared. But you were talking about if you have um, some of these uh, mutations, that there is a lot you can do. Obviously, the surgery is one, but also drug regimens and lifestyle changes. Let's talk about the drug regimens for, for some of these cancers. Oh, well, were you talking about tamoxifen? Yeah, yeah. Let's start with that because I always thought that was a treatment that you get if you were, you know, lucky enough to get, you know, be in phase one and, and not need a whole lot. It has been shown to prevent cancers in not only patients with mutations, but also in women who've had one cancer and it prevents it in the other side you know, about a 50% reduction. It's an interesting thing. The uptake of taking a prevention drug 
is not as high as doing something like surgery. The tamoxifen has its side effects. Talk to anybody who's taken it. You know, women will tell you that they gain weight, they have hot flashes, they're miserable. You know, there, there are all these side effects. So the drug thing has not really been as positive for most people, but people, some people do it, or they do it to temporize things because they want to do something, especially the younger people. In terms of other things that you can do, like, you know, being healthy, exercising, not drinking, you know, all those things are good to do. Again, they don't decrease your risk as much as if you could remove the organ at risk. Right. So there, there are just things that, I mean, obviously no smoking is, is good for, for, for anyone. Oh, yeah, smoking is, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to smoke. Yeah, you, you almost shouldn't have to say that anymore, right? Yeah, that should, I know. That I should just be a given. One. Yeah. I right. forget that one, yeah. And, and you said no drinking, and, and we always hear moderate drinking because there's always a red wine study that comes out every year and, every, and a chocolate study, and we all get excited. So, oh, yeah, yeah. But what yeah. about the drinking then? You've chosen just to quit because you carry the, the BRCA gene. I just think that, uh, you know, the studies, these are all epidemiologic studies, and epidemiologic studies are very tough to interpret. But in the case of smoking, in the case of alcohol, they're all on the side of it's risky. And when you have something like that, always, you just figure you might as well not do it. Right, right. And then the more exercise and the use of sunscreen and all those. And like you said, for the lifestyle changes... Um, so let's say you're just absolutely rigorous about the use of sunscreen and exercising and you don't drink and you don't smoke. I mean, what really percentage-wise are you really decreasing your risk of cancer? I don't know the answer to that. You know, I think it just depends. And especially like sunscreen, we don't really know that it decreases cancer. We just do it because it makes sense. But we've not done this study where we've taken mailmen who, you know, wear sunscreen versus mailmen who have placebo sunscreen on and then see what the difference is so you know again you ask these questions and the risks and what the risks are a lot of the new genes that we're discovering that are predisposing people to cancer have much lower risks we think but with time we're going to get more information and it may be that they're just as risky to have that broken gene as to have a brca broken gene we just don't know so what what these activities do and what the percentages are difficult so again, in terms of people who really should consider a genetic test, who are they? If you have a family, you know, a genetic family, you're not adopted out, uh, then you want to look at your family history and see if there are a lot of early cancers and if there, or if there are a lot of cancers, and then you just need to talk to a counselor. Because whether or not they all fit together, do you have a lot of ovarian cancers? If you have ovarian cancer, that's a ticket. If, any, if anybody related to you, you know, first or second degree, has ovarian cancer, you should be tested for ovarian cancer genes. And it's not just BRCA1 and BRCA2. We could go on and on. But your family history is key to look at and say, oh, gosh, I, I may need to have a genetic test, and I'll talk to my doctor, and he'll refer me to a genetic counselor who will be able to guide you. And then don't be scared of at least having a conversation about a prophylactic surgery. Um, don't mean you have to do it, but at least don't be scared of looking at that. That or having surveillance or whatever that is in terms of your family history. I like to kind of stay broader. Okay, so yeah, so let's talk. We didn't we didn't talk a, a lot about screening and gosh, the screening guidelines have changed a lot. But we're talking about people who are are probably at high risk because you've looked around at your family and you've you've seen that. Right, and and the, you know, your doctor will talk to you about screening, but you always have to be aware that that's going to be changing because our screening techniques are so defective at this point. You know, we're always making progress. Yeah. And that's, I think, what it is. 
you don't know when the science is going to change, you know, when the opinions are going to change. Exactly. And it really does change. And it's really important to, I mean, don't be cynical, but it's really important to stay skeptical that things are going to change. The genetic analysis that we do is a process. We always want to see our patients coming back, even those who have mutations. We want to know when there's a change in the family history because there are some people with my mutation, I just heard about one, and this is kind of crazy, a family where the women are getting breast cancers in their 20s. That's just crazy. That's so young. Uh, we want to know about that because we're thinking, is there another gene that we're missing? Because that's not classic. Usually it's in the late 30s, you know, early 40s. So with the, all of this information, we need information as physicians and scientists. We need it from the patient, so we want to have the discussions. But it's also good for you to know because we will have recommendations for management, and we can help you. So what are you doing in terms of surveillance, or what, what do you do now? Um, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that actually sounds like the whole reason why you went through the surgeries, right? Exactly. I, I really have, I have much bigger and better things to do. I like to do research, and I like to play golf, and I like to see my family and all that kind of stuff. I don't really want to have a lot of screening. And once I've had the surgery, I have very good mastectomies. I have very little breast tissue left. Uh, you know, I, I do need to have my skin screened because I had melanoma, but that's, that's you know, one surveillance a year. And uh, in terms of the ovaries, they're out. Actually, I have my uterus out, too, so I don't have to worry about that. So I'm, I'm kind of scot-free. Good to go. Good, good. Well, it's been fun talking to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Theodora Ross. It has just been a pleasure. Thanks, Barbara. Dr. Theodora Ross is a professor of internal medicine and the director of the Cancer Genetics Program at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. And we were talking about her new book. It's called Cancer in the Family, Take Control of Your Genetic Inheritance. And that's it for this episode of the Sound Medicine Podcast. If you like what you've been hearing, please tell your friends. You can find us on Facebook, plus Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you leave a review on iTunes, it helps other folks find us. Sound Medicine is produced by Nora Hyatt. It's engineered by Chris Lieber. And we have support from the Indiana University School of Medicine. Well, I'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. In the meantime, take care. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.